That last song fit well uh, with the message that we're getting into here today, our last uh, message on the life of Peter, at least in this series. I'm sure I'll preach more about Peter in the days to come, Um, but I'm looking forward to wrapping this up and getting into the book. A question for you, have you ever had one of those phone calls that just altered the trajectory of your week? I'm not talking in a life-altering way, but just changed the course, at least of your day. Uh, I had one like that this week. It was Monday. Um, Mondays are sometimes hard days for pastors, but I felt good. I got up uh, early and got over to the office, tried to organize my week a little bit, and had a good discussion about the kenosis with Lee Bell, and had just a good time here. I was working on other stuff, and the phone rang. I don't often answer on Mondays. Sometimes I just let it go. I figure I'm not here anyway, and uh, that's okay. Uh, But it was Diane, and something about the call told me, okay, something happened. And she's like, well, I was sitting at the computer, and I was working, and all of a sudden there was a weird smell. And I was at the office, so I knew it wasn't me. And uh, anyway, I'm working the way she's working, and all of a sudden she says there was pop and a bunch of noise and fireworks sparks came out of the side of the computer, and then it all just went dead. Well, that's not a good thing. Um, My first thought was, Lord, thank you for prompting us to back that computer up not very long ago. And my second thought was, I really wasn't planning on that today. That was not what I wanted to do. I had other things in my, in my queue that I wanted to take care of. Well, I wrapped up a few things, went home for lunch, and we tore into the, the case, ripped it open, and uh, started tracing things down, and nothing looked burnt inside the machine, which was encouraging. Um, the power strip was working fine. We had power at the outlet, but power was not getting through the power supply of the computer. And that was my first thought. Do you guys know much about computers? Guts inside? Look at this thing. Boy, I tell you what. Kurt, you know exactly what this is, right? He's like, I have no idea. Kurt doesn't like computers. This is a power supply for a computer. It's got a wiring harness on there. And all these little adapters, all these little plugs plug into something inside the box, uh, whether it's your motherboard or your DVD drive or your hard drive, uh, fans, auxiliary things, all kinds of different things. You see an outlet back here. Power from the outlet plugs into the, the power supply. And this transforms the power from 110 down to something manageable to not blow up your board and all, of that, all the parts of your computer. This is what I was thinking it was. And I can't smell very good, but just smelling it, it smelled burnt. So my hope was that maybe when that fried, it didn't take out the rest of my computer. Well, we ordered a new one in, long story short, plugged it all in, got all the components back where they're supposed to be, pushed power, and lo and behold, it started back up. And uh, hard drive was still good. Praise the Lord. Uh, I didn't lose any of the information that was on there. Uh, but I was thinking about that over the course of the week. Why did God allow that to happen? Uh, why, would I, and why would I go there on a Sunday morning? But you know, it fits really well with where we're going with Peter and what we're talking about in the life of Peter. Uh, you know, Diane could have sat there after the computer went dead, and she could have sat there and just continued typing. You know, she could have just typed along, and she's fast. I mean, she can type incredibly fast. Uh, back in the day, I don't even know, 120 or more words a minute just could fly. And, and uh, I can do that too, but you can't read what I type. Um, the thing with her is you could actually read what she was typing. Um, she could have done that. Would she have accomplished anything? And I got to thinking about that, trying to run a computer without a power supply. Uh, it's just the same idea as trying to live the Christian life without the control and the help of the Spirit of God. We can't function in this Christian life without the power of God in our lives. We have to be reliant upon him, trying to live the Christian life in our own strength, trying to serve God in our own strength, trying to love each other as we're supposed to love each other, trying to do all these things as believers without the power of God in our lives is about as effective as sitting there typing on a computer without a working power supply. 
And yet so often I find myself trying to do the Christian life in my own strength. We see Peter in that same exact boat, don't we? He is trying to do Christian life in his own strength. And we've been looking at that. And we're going to see how God transformed him and gave him victory over that uh, here today and the way he can do the same thing for us. Uh, just a, a couple minutes of review here as we work through it for those that may not have been here. Uh, we've been looking at Peter's life and, and we're seeing him coming to this conclusion. I can't do this in my own strength. And it took a little bit of time for it to come to that point. We started with Peter as a fisherman. We picked up the story on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and saw his life uh, partnering with Andrew and James and John in a fishing business. I think a successful fishing business. Blue-collar, self-employed kind of a guy. And they're working hard, physical strength, diligent work ethic, uh, teamwork, perseverance, all these qualities that we see in Peter's life. Uh, This get-or-done mentality. They depended upon their own strength and upon each other to be successful in that business. And by the way, that's not necessarily a bad thing. We've got to expend effort and time in, in the projects that God gives us to do. Well, Jesus now comes along, and he sees Peter, and he sees James and John and Andrew, and he sees through their rough-and-tumble exterior, and he sees the raw materials beneath the surface, and he calls them to be his disciples. Now, Peter becomes a follower of Jesus. He goes from being a fisherman to a follower, from a fisherman to a fisher of men. We talked about this. And over the next several years, he's walking with Jesus. He's living with Jesus 24-7. Imagine what that must have been like. Uh, what do you, the things that he would have heard, the things that he would have seen. Uh, he asks questions, and he gets answers, and he's figuring it out. He's putting this all together. And Jesus now begins to refine the raw materials in Peter's life. He's creating opportunities for Peter to succeed, and that happens. He also gives opportunities for Peter to fail, and that happens as well. And in so doing, he's teaching Peter the importance of relying upon divine strength rather than personal effort. And it's interesting as we we read about this and we see Peter in these scenarios, it's like he's starting to figure it out. And I don't know about you, but I'm getting excited. It's like he's getting it. I mean, look at the difference in his life from the the time he's called till later on towards the end of of him being a disciple. Um, But then something happens. And we see Peter reverting back to his old way of thinking. Reverting back to his self-reliance, he makes this confident, boastful announcement. Lord, I'll never deny you. Lord, I'll go to the death for you. Lord, if everybody else leaves you, forsakes you, fails you, denies you, I will not do that. Lord, I love you too much. I will go to the death for you. And I think Peter meant that. In his heart, he was sincere. He really believed that he would be able to do that, no matter how difficult the situation became. But there's a repetition in those phrases, a repetition of the little letter I that reminds us that Peter hadn't quite figured this out yet. It betrayed the fact that he hadn't resolved the struggle with self-sufficiency and it set the stage for a public and a dramatic failure in Peter's life. And we know the story, he forsook his Lord in the garden and then there was a threefold denial in the courtyard and then Peter flees in shame and uh, he's a broken man. The next few days, I'm sure, were difficult, but Jesus didn't give up on Peter, and Jesus doesn't give up on us as well. He's a God of the second chance, and I'm so thankful for that because I need it over and over again in my life. But Jesus had prayed in advance for Peter. We saw that last week. He followed up privately with Peter after the failure, and then later on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus again finds Peter. And you know the story. I'm not going to go into it again, but the miraculous haul of fish Reminds Peter, I think, of his original call to follow Jesus. And there by the fire, he reaffirms his love for his Savior. 
Three humble reaffirmations of love, one for each fearful act of denial that took place days earlier. And this time I think Peter begins to get it. I think it clicks for Peter at this point, and he moves from Peter the failure to Peter the faithful. And the Peter, like I said before, that we see in the book of Acts is dramatically different than the Peter we see in the Gospels. He's a transformed man, a radical transformation. He's now preaching courageously, and he's standing boldly, and he's healing miraculously. He's confronting with authority. He's leading with wisdom and strength and humility. It's a different man. So what was it that made the difference in Peter's life? And there's a lot of things that could be said here. But what flipped the switch? I think he finally recognized his own inadequacy, and he saw the Lord's sufficiency. That's what it took. I think you realize at this point that serving Christ must be done through his power and his strength. And what changed for Peter was the decision to quit relying on his own strength and exchange that for a complete dependency upon the omnipotent strength of God. He plugged into the power supply. (laughs) Going back to our earlier illustration. He recognized that he needed power from outside, not power from inside. Not personal power, but supernatural power. And we see this playing out in Peter's life through a personal encounter with Christ, through a personal filling with the Holy Spirit, and finally a personal communication with the Father. I'd like to take those one at a time and look at those individually here this morning and see how God transformed Peter from a defeated disciple to a victorious apostle and how he can transform our lives as well as we become more dependent upon him and less dependent upon ourselves. Number one, Peter had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. And we've looked at some of this, but I want you to see the progression. We're we're hitting it from a little different angle than we've done before. I see this breaking down in three stages. Number one, he had a saving encounter with Jesus Christ. And we don't know exactly when this took place. Uh, I believe that, that getting to the point of salvation is a process, but salvation itself happens at a point in time. At some point, you've got to believe and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You've got to have a birth, right? And that happens at a point in time. But it's a process of events that brings us to that point where we understand and where we have the faith to make that decision. And we see that in Peter's life. It was a process. Remember, he was introduced to Jesus by Andrew, his brother. And he was told, we found the Messiah. That's his first introduction. Do you remember your first introduction to Jesus? You know, I can't. I was just a little kid. I was, went to church from the time I was a baby. And at some point, I mean, it, it started to click. But my first, probably Jesus loves me. I'm not sure my first exposure to Jesus. Uh, think about that with, in your life. Later on, he identified Jesus as Lord after the miraculous catch of fish. Remember that? Uh, Jesus is calling him to be his disciple. And he's, he, they bring in this huge net full of fish. And Peter recognizes Jesus' lordship. And he says, I'm, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And he recognized him that way. In Matthew 16, he identifies Jesus as the son of the living God. A great passage, and we've looked at these. That's why I'm not going into detail. And then later in John chapter 6, he identifies Jesus as the one and only way to eternal life. Jesus says, all these other disciples are going away. Are you going to go away as well? And Peter says, to whom should we go? Where, Where can we go? You're the one alone that has the words of eternal life. He made that connection. And somewhere in that point, this intellectual recognition in his mind turned to saving faith, and Peter is converted. It went from knowledge in his head to faith in his heart. He believed, and he received the gift. And some point in there, he was converted. When that exactly happened, we probably won't know this side of eternity, and it doesn't matter. The point is, he came to saving faith in Christ. Jesus asked him in one of those last encounters, Who do you say that I am? 
Another way of saying that is, who is Jesus to you? And I might ask us that question here today. Who is Jesus to you? Have you ever had a saving encounter with Jesus Christ? Your answer to that first question will determine your answer to the second question. What we believe about Jesus is incredibly important. Now, when I'm talking about conversion, I'm not talking about just going to church on a regular basis. By the way, I'm glad you're here. It's important that we come to church. I'm not minimizing that at all. But that's not what I'm talking about in regards to conversion. I'm not talking about living a good life. I'm not talking about helping your neighbor. I'm not talking about all of those things that are good. I'm not even talking about being baptized or taking communion on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis. These things are good. But you can do all of these things and still be unconverted. What I'm talking about is have you ever had a personal saving encounter with Jesus Christ? Has there ever been a point in time when you saw your sinful condition and you understood the grace of God? And you turn from your sin and put your faith and trust in Jesus and you receive the gift of eternal life. That's what it takes to be saved. That's what it takes for, took for Peter and that's what it takes for you and for me. Have you had this saving encounter with Christ? We see the next, the saving encounter for Peter moved to a surrendering encounter. I'm not going to focus a lot of time on this as well. I just want to draw out a couple points. This is John chapter 21. If you want to turn there, we've covered this pretty much in depth last week. Uh, We see, first of all, a sovereignly orchestrated meeting. This is after the resurrection. This is when Jesus has told Peter and the disciples to go to Galilee. I'm going to meet with you there. And Peter ends up going fishing. I don't think he's leaving the Lord. I don't think he's returning to his former life. I think he's earning a living the best way that he knows how. He takes them and they go fishing. And we know the story. They toil all night and they don't catch any fish. Their nets come up empty all night long. Imagine how disappointing that would be. And that's now where Jesus meets Peter. I think it's divinely orchestrated, sovereignly orchestrated. He meets Peter now at another point of failure. Peter had failed in the courtyard and now he's failing again, but this time at what he knows best. That's tough when we're good at something and then we fail at that. And Jesus is bringing Peter to that point. And he calls across the waves, and Peter responds. They cast the net on the other side. It fills with fish. Peter gets the recognition it's it's Christ because John says it's the Lord. He goes into the water. He swims to shore. They eat breakfast together. And there by the fire, Jesus reaches out to Peter and shows him that failure is not final as long as God's grace is operable. I've said that many times in this series. But it's a great reminder Jesus has seen Peter at his worst, and he still loves him, and he still reaches out to draw him back. Next, Jesus asks Peter a series of probing questions. It's essentially the same question. But he's forcing Peter to take a look inside his heart, to search his heart, and find out if, what's really inside there. And the question is basically this, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you really love me? Peter, do you really love me more than these? And we talked about what that could mean last week. And after the third round of questions, Peter is finally broken. And there by the fire, he surrenders it to the Lord. I think that was a point of surrender for Peter. His ambitions, his self-confidence, his pride, his personal abilities, I think he surrenders all of that at that point. And we see his humble response, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He can't even use the same word for love that Jesus was using, but he says, I want to love you that way. And in that humble response, we see surrender to do whatever love for his Lord might demand. You see, earlier he'd professed a love for the Lord and then he failed. His actions called that love into question. 
And now Jesus asks him the question again, do you really love me? He repeats it three times to drive home the point, Peter, I want you to be sure this time. Who are you depending upon? Because he wraps it up by saying, you are going to have to follow me even to the point of death. Peter, are you really willing to do that this time? Will you surrender to that kind of life? Peter went from betrayal to boldness by way of brokenness. And we see that surrender here in this passage. You know, this surrendering encounter is important for you and for me as well. It's essential for us just as it was for Peter. So we could pose the question, you've trusted Christ as your Savior, have you? Have you had that, that saving encounter? Has there ever been a time where you've surrendered him to be Lord? Allowed him to have control of your life. Allowed him to come first, giving him first claim to every area of your life. When Jesus says, do you really love me more than these, can you answer in the affirmative? Whatever these is for you, have you surrendered to him? I think this change in Peter's life comes about by means of surrender. A Romans 12, 1 and 2 kind of surrender. A living sacrifice kind of surrender. So Peter has the saving encounter. He has a surrendering encounter. And third, he has a sustaining encounter. Turn with me to Acts chapter 4. We're getting into some new ground here this morning. Like I said, we've covered a lot of that, but we're changing our angle just a little bit. A sustaining encounter. In Acts chapter 4, it's the story of Peter. They've just healed the lame man, Peter and John. They're standing before the council, the same council that put Jesus to death. And Peter responds to them when they say, well, what power have you done this? He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he preaches to them. And um, look now in verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. That's quite a verse. So much here in this verse. Peter and the disciples were living above their abilities. Is that a nice way to say it? (laughs) They were living far above their abilities. And the, the leaders recognized this. They looked at them and they said, they're unlearned and ignorant men. Those words are, are significant. Uh, the first one is the idea of uneducated, kind of like what we would think, unlearned. They, did, they haven't had formal education. It doesn't mean that, that Peter and John had never gone to school. Uh, they knew how to read and they knew how to write. They knew all of that. They hadn't had the benefits of a higher education. And that was important if you were going to be dealing with the law and with what these Jewish leaders were working with. So they were, they were unlearned. They were uneducated. The word ignorant there has a similar type of a tone, but it really refers to the idea of being common. It's more in regards to their social status. Remember when we talked about Peter earlier, we commented that people that were born into blue-collar families stayed in blue-collar families. They didn't have the privilege of being able to expand their horizons and go on to college and go beyond that normal education. And so they're looking at these men and they're saying, these guys are above their abilities. They're having this competent conversation with us. We're highly educated. They're very uneducated. They're common. How in the world are they communicating with us at this level? Something has changed, and it says they marveled at their boldness. There was a sense of wonder and amazement. How can these common, uneducated fishermen show such intelligence and boldness and courage as they communicate with us? What is taking place here? What's happened to these guys? There was a change. And notice what they associated that with. I love that at the end of verse 13, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. This idea of a sustaining encounter. It's interesting, the word there, uh, the the idea there had been, it's an imperfect. 
And the idea behind that in the Greek is a continued, repeated action that happens over and over in the past. And uh, from their perspective, that would make sense, uh, the way that word is used. Past action with continuing results, a continual relationship. And they connected the disciples' courage with the presence of Jesus. (laughs) Wow. They made that connection. From their mindset, that was something that had happened in the past. They thought that that it ended because Jesus had died. But it's true. In the past, they had three-plus years interacting with Jesus, living life with him. And Jesus had rubbed off on them. But what they didn't realize was they had spent significant time with Jesus even after his death and after his resurrection. And beyond that, they were still spending time with Jesus even after his resurrection and ascension. The leaders didn't understand that. There's a sustaining encounter with Jesus that was ongoing in the life of these disciples. Jesus Christ was very much alive, and the apostles were enjoying continued fellowship with their Savior at an even higher level, I think, than they were when he was here physically on earth. I think the disciples figured out John 15 is what I think happened. John 15, the secret of the vine, abide in me and I in you, and then you'll be able to bear fruit. If you don't abide in me, you can't bear fruit. I think that was coming to fruition in their life. There was spiritual fellowship going on between the disciples and Jesus Christ that far exceeded what these Jewish leaders could even comprehend. They were being sustained by that relationship. It's a beautiful picture. They had been, and they continued to be with Jesus. And folks, that's a secret for us as well. How do we live above our abilities? How do we accomplish the work that God wants us to do? How do we live above our weaknesses and our failures? How can we demonstrate divine strength? We need daily sustaining encounters with our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to spend much time with him. And when we make that a priority, we'll experience power just like the disciples did as well. So Peter had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, but he also, secondly, had a personal filling with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit empowered Peter's life. Think back to when Peter and James and John and all the disciples failed in the garden. Uh, they, they, They were sleeping instead of praying. What did Jesus say to them? The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter failed in his flesh, but he triumphed through the Spirit. Let's look at some ways we see Peter filled with the Spirit as we work through this. Acts chapter 2. It's the day of Pentecost. Verse 1, the day of Pentecost was fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues as of fire. And it sat upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues, other languages. And the Spirit gave them utterance. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen in chapter 1 and verse 5. John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit, with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. Jesus said it would happen. Here in Acts 2, we see that happen. What was the result? We see Peter preaching a powerful message. Go on to Acts chapter 4. We've been through this passage. Peter and John are before the council. And... In verse 7, they asked, by what power have you done this? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, "Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. The Spirit's power on Peter here in Acts chapter 4. Move down with me to Acts chapter 4, verse 31, the end of the chapter. 
They've been released. They're no longer uh, incarcerated. They find the rest of the disciples. They have a prayer meeting. At the end of that prayer meeting in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit's power as they were filled with him. I think these early references are demonstrating a pattern. It doesn't say this every time that Peter went and healed somebody or that he preached from here on out. It doesn't say it every time. But I think it's setting a pattern and helping us understand that this is something that they begin to operate under the Spirit's power for the rest of their lives. There's no need to repeat it over and over again because uh, it's clear they're continuing to do those same actions. It's clear they're still under the power of the Holy Spirit. So Peter and the disciples experienced a personal filling of the Holy Spirit. Let's take just a moment here because we need to understand the Holy Spirit needs to empower our lives as well. As we work through this, we don't have time to, to delve into it in a lot of detail, but let me just say it this way. There is a difference between the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We see both terms mentioned here in the book of Acts, and as we get further into the epistles, we see uh, the, the, the Paul and others begin to clarify some of this for us. So what's the difference? Well, the baptiz- baptism of the Spirit is a gift that's given to every single believer when they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's another word for saying we are indwelled. Right? If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, let's turn there quickly. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And you can cross-reference this later with Romans 6 if you'd like to. But in verse 12 it says, For as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. He's talking about the body of Christ. For by one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, are we all baptized into one body, the body of Christ, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, bond or free, we have all been all made to drink into one spirit. A gift that's given to all believers at the point of faith in Christ. We're baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. So what then is the idea of filling? Well, where this one is a gift, filling is a command. Have you noticed that? Turn to Ephesians, the book of Ephesians with me, chapter 5. Ephesians in chapter 5. Verse 17 says, Be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Imperative mode, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a command. We are to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And so we see here that baptism is a one-time event. It's a gift. Filling needs to happen every single day. We could even say filling should happen hourly. We need to be living under the control, under the filling of the Holy Spirit. So let's talk a little bit about what this means. To, to What does filling mean? Um, Two ways of looking at it. First, the idea to be filled to the brim, to be filled to overflowing. Um, It's the picture of what happens at camp when you ask somebody to fill your water glass. And they fill it, and they fill it so full that it's just crowning over the edge of the cup because they want you to spill it all over yourself when you try to get a drink because kids will be kids, you know what I'm saying? Uh, But that's the picture. Totally full, not room for anything else. The second idea is the idea to be controlled. To be under the influence of. Don't be under the influence of alcohol, but be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Allow the Holy Spirit to control you. How then is a person filled with the Spirit? Well, it makes logical sense. If I'm to be filled with something, I must first be emptied. I can't be filled with something new unless I'm emptied of something old. And we see that happening with Peter. He was emptied of himself so that he could now be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. We see surrender in this as well. The bottom line is I'm giving control of my life to the Holy Spirit. 
I'm turning the wheel over to him. I'm taking the passenger seat. I'm moving to the back seat. If you have a tendency to take the wheel back, go further back in the car to where you can't reach. Allow him to have control. And that's what happened with Peter. And the result was boldness to proclaim God's word. He had the power of God in his life. So who's in control of your life? And I ask myself the same question. Who's in control of my life? I think Jesus took Peter by his ankles and shook him out until nothing of the old self remained. And then he filled him, and he empowered him, and he enabled him. But before he could do all of that, he had to empty him. And that's not always a pleasant process. And if you've gone through times of emptying, times of failure, times of difficulty, you know what that's like. And they're hard, times of brokenness, we don't like them, but they bring us to the end of ourselves. And that's a good thing because now it allows the Holy Spirit to be able to fill us. And then we have the power of God in our life. So we see Peter had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ, a personal filling with the Holy Spirit. But thirdly, we see he has a personal communication with God the Father. All three persons of the Trinity involved in Peter's understanding of divine reliance. You know, you can't read through the first part of the book of Acts without seeing the huge emphasis on prayer. It's everywhere you look, uh, over and over and over again. I don't know if Peter and the disciples took notes when they walked with Christ. I think some of us would have been, right? You had your little notebook and just jotting everything down. Uh, If they did, I wonder if they went back in their minds to that time in Luke chapter 11, I believe it is, when they'd heard Jesus pray and they're like, wow, Lord, would you teach us to pray? And Jesus gave them that model prayer that we see both in Matthew 6 and there in Luke 11. It didn't stick at that time. But I think now after Christ is gone, it is, it is stuck, and I think they're starting to figure some of that out. Peter learned the hard way that prayerlessness leads to powerlessness. A lack of prayer leads to a lack of faith. And they had fell asleep three times in the garden. They denied the Lord three times in the courtyard. Failure to pray leads to a failure to stand, and Peter experienced that. But as we get to the book of Acts, prayer becomes a focal point in the life of Peter and the other disciples. Acts chapter 1. We see the ascension has taken place, and they're sent back to Jerusalem to wait uh, for the Holy Spirit. And what do they do? They gather together, verse 14, they continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. They continued with one accord in prayer. <clears throat> the habit that they started there is, is going to serve them well. They prayed later on in chapter 1 to replace Judas. <clears throat> Chapter 21, verse 23 and 24, they appointed two. We need to replace some, send somebody to replace Judas. And they prayed about it in verse 24 and said, Lord, you know the hearts of these men. Help us make a wise decision. Help us choose the right one. They're responding in prayer. We see prayer on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. It's not specifically mentioned, but what does it say? When the day of Pentecost was come, they were all with one accord in one place. Back up to chapter 1, when they were all in one accord in one place, what were they doing? They were praying. I think it's a logical connection that what they were doing here when the Spirit of God fell upon them is they were praying. Prayer must take place before the need arises, and we see that here. But prayer must also continue after effort is expended. We can't just pray once for the day and say we're good. We have to pray continually. And the habit that they started in chapter 1, verse 14 that we just looked at continues through the formation of the whole church. Go with me to Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. The 3,000 have been saved, and they're working through the dynamics that go along with that. 
And it says that they continued, verse 46, daily with one accord, there's that word again, in the temple, and breaking their bread from house to house, they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor uh, with everyone. And I think I, did I miss my verse? Help me out here. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and in breaking their bread and in prayer. They continued steadfastly in prayer. Go to chapter 6 and verse 4. Another conflict has come up in the church. The widows weren't being taken care of the way they, they should have been. And, and so they look out, they choose as a church seven individuals, the first deacons. Why? For what purpose? Verse 4, so that the disciples, Peter and John and James and the others, can continually give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word of God. This pattern they started early in the book of Acts is continuing on through their ministries. Prayer must continue as effort is expended. We see him praying after standing before the council in chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. We've mentioned that. What do they pray for? <laughs> They're praying for boldness. They're praying for courage to say what needs to be said. They're praying for power from on high to do what needs to be done. And they're praying that Jesus Christ would be magnified, that he would be lifted up. It's a great prayer. We see that Peter also observed regular times of personal prayer. Turn to Acts chapter 10. Story of Cornelius. As Cornelius is uh, praying and he's receiving a vision from the Lord, Peter is now uh, back in Joppa and he goes up onto the rooftop. And let's pick it up in verse 9. It's on the morrow as they went on their journey. That's the servants of Cornelius coming to get Peter. They drew nigh unto the city. Peter went up onto the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. He went up on the housetop to pray. Is Jesus' ministry rubbing off on Peter? Is Peter remembering all those times that Jesus went and got alone to pray? And look at the power that came when he did that. He had power to still the storm after spending time in prayer. And Peter's making these connections. And now he's setting apart time for personal prayer. Not just group prayer, but personal prayer as well. We see in Acts chapter 12 that they prayed during times of distress and opposition. James has been executed. Peter's been imprisoned. What's the church doing? They're gathering together, and it says prayer is made without ceasing for them. Where did they get that idea? I think it's coming from their leadership, from Peter and from James and from John. Folks, they had a personal communication with God the Father on a regular basis, and we too need personal communion with the Father if we desire to have Peter-like faith. They made a link between the power of God and prayer, and we need to make that connection as well. So my question is, do we have regularly scheduled times where we get alone with God? Peter did. And we need to have times like that as well. Do we live in a constant attitude of prayer? Do we operate with a pray without ceasing mentality, as Paul tells us in the book of Thessalonians? Do we actively engage in corporate prayer? When the church gathers for times of prayer, do we join in with that? Folks, our prayer meeting is important. And if you can't pray here, it's good to assemble. We need to pray and with other people when it comes time to Wednesday, or Wednesday nights and all through the week. Why is prayer such an important thing? Well, when Peter figured it out, it completely changed his life. I think we could say it this way. Prayer is an admission of personal inadequacy as well as an expression of divine dependency. When I learn to pray, what am I saying? I'm saying two things. I'm unable, but God, you're able. And God, I need you. And if we don't get to that point through brokenness and through failure and through other things, we'll never have God's power in our lives. This was a good reminder for me this week. 
I have a tendency to just, to just head down and start plowing. And I can get so involved with all the things that I need to do that I can forget to spend time in prayer. This needs to be my primary focus. And it should be the primary focus for all of us as well. And I guess as we wrap this up, which Peter do you identify with today? <laughs> do you identify with the self-confident Peter that failed or the dependent Peter that lived above his abilities? I want to be the Peter that lived above his abilities. I think we would all have that same goal. You know, maybe you're here today and you'd say, I've never come to saving faith in Christ. I've never had this saving encounter that Peter had. Well, man, if that's you, come and talk to one of us today, and we'd be glad to show you from the Word of God how you can know Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe you're here and you're struggling with consistency. I think we all do to some degree, but yielding control to the Spirit and then taking the control back and yielding and then taking it back, oh, that's something that we need to help getting under control like Peter did. Maybe you're realizing today that those moments of spiritual weakness are tied directly to moments of prayerlessness, and you want to make a decision to say, God, I want to, I want to trust you and I'll pray more. God, I want to be more dependent upon you. As we close in a word of prayer and then as we go to our, our time of, of uh, invitation, as we sing a hymn, let me just encourage you while God is speaking to you, do business with God. Respond to him as he's speaking to your heart and uh, let him do the work that he wants to do. Father, I thank you for Peter. I thank you for just the, the accuracy of scripture and the way it presents uh, these men with their good and, and also with their struggles. God, if all we saw in Scripture was Peter's success, it would be almost discouraging for us. But the fact that you, under your inspiration, have, have chosen to give us the failures, Father, that encourages my heart. Because, Father, you realize that we are flesh, and you realize that we are but grass. <clears throat> we're going to fade, and we're going to fail. And yet, Peter was able to uh, be used of you. You were able to bring him back, and you can do the same for us. Father, you enabled him, you empowered him, you helped him to understand that dependence upon self doesn't work, dependence upon you is the only thing that gives us power. And God, I pray that you would do that same work in my life and in the lives of each of us here in church as well, so that we can go about our day serving in your power and not in our strength. And Father, we thank you for the work that you're going to do in Christ's name. Amen.